an overwhelming amount of scientists believe that life emerged via a process called evolution, but an overwhelming majority of Christians in America disagree. This begs the question, am I a monkey's uncle? Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast, everybody. I'm Michael Gunger. And I'm Lisa Pena. The really good-looking guy with the red beard is me. <laughs> a beard like the sons of the Pleiades. They're uh, not red, though, are they? They're no, blue. They're bluish. Well, I mean, in the nice guy, everything's bluish because uh, you have to sample a lot of photons to get the red light. So is there any real red in the Pleiades anywhere? I mean, it's in the spectrum somewhere, right? Yes. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we want to welcome you to the second Liturgist podcast. Uh, this is our second take at it. We had the good fortune of our first episode breaking thanks to our wonderful co-host, Lissa. Thanks, Lissa. Good Liz. job, Lissa. I apologize, but I have a feeling this one's going to be even better. Well, it's so weird. Uh, when we recorded this the first time, we were kind of uh, not sure how to approach it. But oddly enough, uh, current events seem to favor a, a new discussion on this topic of where life came from and how that relates to the Bible. Um, it was a bit serendipitous. <laughs> uh, for those of you who might be living under a rock... Um, <laughs> And are unaware, uh, a, a magazine that I've never heard of called World Mag uh, dug up a bunch of kind of older writings and, and interviews uh, from our good man, Mikey G, and uh, were really shocked that he didn't believe the earth was formed in six literal days. And this has emerged into sort of a massive online freakout uh where conservative Christians and progressive Christians have kind of lined up Civil War style and are firing muskets at each other. And that's actually um, escalated to the point where none other than Bill Nye's nemesis, Ken Ham, has uh, written a post on Answers in Genesis, um, really kind of taking apart Michael's position and effectively equating belief in Christ and participation in the Christian tradition with acceptance of the um, modern incarnation of biblical infallibility. And the Liturgist Podcast is where stuff like this gets talked about, because the Liturgist Podcast is a podcast where faith, science, and art, and any combination thereof, collide, and we swim in the chaos. And uh, so here we are. This week's episode is Evolution. And we're going to be looking at evolution from the perspective of science, faith, and art. And what a joy it's going to be. It won't be controversial at all. Well, everybody agrees that we didn't come from monkeys, Mike. So what are you talking about? <laughs> that is true. We did not come from monkeys. So that's a wrap. We covered it. You answered your question. <laughs> The answer is no, we did not come from monkeys. Uh, what did we come from, Mike? Let's so, get into science. Shall yes. we get into science? A super science. common. <laughs> you got to be ready for a theme moment at any given second with Michael Gunger in the room. I have a guitar in my it lap. Just, it could strike. Um, evolution would say that humans and monkeys came from a common ancestor, not that... Um, humans came from monkeys 
I don't know, Mike, if you've read um, a little book called The Bible, but all that sounds like a bunch of hogwash to me. Well, it sounds like hogwash to like 42% of Americans, which is astoundingly high for uh, a developed nation. In fact, it's the highest percentage of any developed nation for people who believe that mankind came fully formed approximately six to 10,000 years ago. I just have one question. Michael Gunger, what do you have to say for yourself? (laughs) Oh, man. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe he was the son of God. I believe that the Bible is God-breathed in that beautiful way of saying it in the New Testament, that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in all righteousness. I love my faith and I hold on to it. I affirm it. I affirm our creeds. Um, I just also love science and I love, I think it's a testament to God uh, as well. Where did life on earth come from? Um, I believe in the Big Bang Theory. Okay. So I think we're just kind of like something happened in space, bam, and molecules and atoms formed and kind of here we are. So you believe in evolution then? Yes. Why? It just makes more sense to me. Great, thank you. Yeah. Where do you think life on Earth came from? It's not a trick. God. Where do you think life on Earth came from? Creator and science. Okay. Do you believe in evolution? Still pondering. Awesome. Yeah. That's probably the best answer I've gotten. And why are you still pondering? Because I'm midlife. Thought I knew it all years ago, and now, you know, thinking twice about everything. So do you want to start by maybe perhaps going into a little definition of evolution for those who don't really know? That's a great idea. Yeah, and that's a big problem. There's a tremendous debate about evolution among tremendous ignorance. So let's first say that evolution is something everyone believes in. Every single person listening to this podcast believes in and supports evolution because evolution simply means change. You have evolved since you started listening to this podcast. Your brain has changed. You've lost skin cells. You have evolved. So the debate we're having is not about evolution, nor is it about where life came from. Life emerged in the world of science through a process called abiogenesis, and that's a separate theory and process from the theory of natural selection, or what we would call Darwinian evolution. And that's the idea that the diversity of life on Earth is the result of a specific set of processes. Namely, uh, genes are reproduced and mutated and then tested for suitability in the environment. You may have heard this popularized as survival of the fittest, but that's um, an oversimplification to the point of being wrong. What evolution does is simply favor adaptations that work best in this environment. 
There's no ultimate goal to evolution. We're not getting better and better or smarter and smarter. We're not becoming transhuman. Uh, none of those sorts of ideas you may have heard have any validity. It's simply that organisms that survive are best adapted to their environment now. And you could prove this relatively easily with a time machine. If you pulled a Tyrannosaurus Rex from his time period and set him on Earth today, he would have difficulty breathing, he'd have difficulty hunting food, and he would have no ability to deal with the microbial life present in our environment. His life would be very brief. At the same time, if you took a small band of humans without technology and dropped them into the land of the T-Rex, they would not be long for this world. They would be very hot. Uh, they would not be suited to deal with the microbes of that era. And the types of nutrition that they expect and rely on, especially in the forms of vegetation, didn't yet exist in the environment. Evolution is not a measure of best. It's a measure of timeliness. Science, Mike, I just like to say you don't know me. I mean, I could survive if I really wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I watch Bear Grylls. Right, yeah. So even though that's a joke, that someone may be thinking that. <clears throat> and Bear Grylls, who is actually uh, not that impressive a survivalist in my opinion, but he's a very good TV star. Um, he, the things he's looking for to survive, as he scanned the landscape looking for the kinds of plants he knows he could eat, yes. Yes. he would find none. He would only find, um, you know, uh, ferns and very primitive trees. Um, he, he would have difficult <laughs> finding any fruit. Uh, all the things he expects to find to survive would be missing. And uh, on, in addition, a lot of the animals he'd like to hunt would be the size of a herd of elephants. So he'd have a very difficult time bringing them down. And he would find predators the size of a bus um, that were also very, very fast moving. So Bear Grylls, despite his phenomenal um, camera presence, uh, probably would not fare all that well with a Utah raptor or a tyrannosaur um, or, or even a large sauropod. We just lost four listeners because you just bear grills. <laughs> yeah, you talk about controversy. Survivor man all the way. That's all I'm saying. Survivor man all the way. <laughs> the authority of the Bible is one thing. <laughs> Science Mike, it's, it's the end of you. I'm sorry. Hey, so, hey, Mike, so what, what do the creationists say about about that whole period, I mean, about the past as far as, you know, huge periods of, of time where there are dead fossils in the ground far before humanity ever makes the fossil record. Do they well, say first, that humans... We've got to be clear that there is a diversity and belief among creation scientists in the same way that there are diversities of beliefs in other forms of knowledge. That they they're a, maybe a little more homogeneous than other groups, but they have their own controversies and their own disagreements. Um, and in fact, even creationists can be divided uh, immediately into young earth and old earth creationists. There are people who look at Genesis 1 and they take a literal reading, but they look at the language and say those six days refer to massive eras of time, not literal days. After all, a day as we understand it today comes from the earth revolving on its axis. And at first, there was no sun uh, for the Earth to revolve on an axis and have a 24-hour day period from. So people say it's logically impossible, and they become old Earth creationists. Now, young Earth creationists, for those long periods of time, number one, tend to assert that dinosaurs coexisted with humanity for some period of time, and that most of what we see as fossils 
um, are the results of a global flood that covered the earth entirely in water. And so at, in that process, as the flood uh, washed away, uh, it moved the earth, it created a lot of sediment very quickly, and in that process, you got the fossil record. That's the claims I've seen from creationists. Okay. It's, uh, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> scientifically, there, there's a real problem with that, um, and that's radiometric dating. Um, as we look back at the fossil record, consistent things happen. Life gets more primitive. The oldest fossils are single cells, and then they move into colony organisms, and they move into very, very basic non-diverse. And as you move forward in time, you get increasing diversity, and we can consistently date those um, life forms through radiometric dating, which is a, a scientifically valid, predictable process. Science Mike, I just had to look up like 18 of those words that you used. <laughs> do we need, do you, can you, is there one I need to define? I mean, no. I mean, I kind of followed it just by you talking and like defining it. With the well, let's, let's used. talk about radiometric dating for a second. Could we do that? Sure. So there's radiometric there's, dating. This doesn't mean radioactive people going out and socializing. It's not that kind of dating. It means to <laughs> science jokes. It means to know how old something is um, by looking at radioactivity. And essentially, any elements that aren't completely stable, mainly certain types of isotopes. Um, isotopes is an element that has a different number of neutrons in its nucleus, uh, or in elements that are actively radioactive. Um, they have something called a half-life. We know how quickly they break down. And that also means there's different times of dating because different elements break down at different rates. We can observe that in the laboratory. It's not, quote, historical science. We can make those observations now. Um, but when we look at the half-life of these elements, um, different elements help you date different time periods. So let's look at carbon, for example. There's an isotope of carbon called carbon-14, and it's relatively rare on our planet, but we know how fast it breaks down into something called carbon-12, okay? Now, there's a consistent amount of carbon-14 on our planet because any carbon that's involved in organic molecules on the surface uh, are part of the food chain, and they're constantly getting mixed up, and at some point, they get released into the atmosphere and they get bombarded by cosmic rays in the upper atmosphere, at which point some percentage turns back into carbon-14. So we know there's a predictable amount of carbon-14 at or above the surface of the Earth, right? So when you measure something that's buried under the Earth, we know that um, carbon-14 has a, a half-life, and I can't remember exactly, it's like 5,600 years, 5,700 years, something like that. You know, so if you had, if you had a kilogram of carbon-14 in 5,700 years, you'd have half a kilogram, right? The rest would have turned into carbon-12. So when we look at the ratio of carbon-14 atoms to carbon-12 atoms, that gives us some ability to measure the age of something that has been removed from the food chain and removed from the kind of churn that happens above this, the Earth's surface. And, and you, when you imagine that with different elements, with um, uranium, uh, which breaks down into other elements, uh, that gives you the ability to look farther and farther back in time with very high degrees of accuracy as long as you're looking for an element that has a half-life appropriate for the time period that you're looking for. Did that make any sense? 
It did, but let me just argue this. Um, well, just I'm just gonna say it because I've had people say it to me, or like in I've been in like science class where that one kid raises his hand and be like, "Well, how do you how accurate is it? Like how how do we know that in a hundred years this isn't gonna be like the world was flat?" Kind of argument. Like, is this just as sound as it can be? This is mathematical and there's no... I see. Yeah, okay, so there's only one form of human knowledge that can be proven. That's mathematics. Yes. The only human knowledge provable is math. That's the only thing we have a proof in. In science, all knowledge is provisional. And the idea in science is you place confidence in a belief in a proportional amount to the amount of evidence you have to support it. So uh, radiometric dating... We're very, 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 very confident. And why? Because we have hundreds of years of documented science observing this process. And our theoretical models we build for this process keep getting validated through experimental results. Which brings me to another idea. People will dismiss evolution because they say it's a theory. The popular usage for the word theory has nothing to do with the scientific usage of the word theory. It, in science, the word you call theory is closest to the word hypothesis. It's an untested idea. But in science, once something has been so validated by evidence and it's become a large comprehensive model that makes predictions about reality that have been validated, that becomes a theory. And you'll notice there's not very much debate online about the theory of gravity. No one is saying that gravity doesn't exist because it's a theory. No one's jumping off buildings because they expect gravity to fail. But the fact is, we understand more, and we have more evidence for, evolution via natural selection than we have about gravity. In terms of physics, we don't even know how gravity works on a subatomic level. We haven't found its force carrier. It doesn't fit in the standard model. And yet, people widely accept gravity as fact even though evolution is even more easily and readily observed than gravity. So can we get, let's do a couple quick pieces of those evidence rather than just claiming, claiming that because that's a, that's a big claim, you know, for a lot of people. So we've got the dating, we've got the fossil record. Uh, what are some of our, our other big pieces of information? How about DNA? Can, you t can we talk about DNA for a little second? Yeah, so DNA um, is uh, the molecule of you. It is uh, common to all life on Earth, um, other than bacterium. Bacteria don't necessarily have full DNA. Actually, bacteria, most bacteria do. Some viruses don't. Um, but uh, DNA is um, digital information encoded in organic molecules. And then that's broken into words called genes. So you, as a human being, have about 25,000 genes, right? Um, and what's interesting is DNA shows remarkable commonality in that all life on Earth shares greater than, I don't remember the exact percentage, but it's like 95 or 97% all life on Earth shares common DNA. And so by looking at DNA, now that we've sequenced genomes for not only our species, but other species as well, we find that only about 2% of your DNA is actively encoded, and the rest of it's a historical record. So by looking at DNA, you can see uh, how long ago different species branched off from each other. So you can see, for example, that chimpanzees and bonobos, which are two different species, haven't been different species bonobos. very long. Yes. <laughs> or as they're sometimes called in science, bonobos, because they're very, very sexual apes. 
That's science. Uh, so DNA will tell you some remarkable things. For example, according to DNA science, there's never been less than about 1,200 individuals in the human species. But it also tells you, and this is a really critical point, that the idea of species is just a construct. That if you sort of back the lens out over time, there's just these gradual changes. and There's no clear line where one day uh, you have an ancestor and the next day you have a different species. Um, these are slow drifts. And, and one way to look at that would be a very contemporary example um, that you could verify uh, if, you're, if you have questions just with Google. Just look for the peppered moth. Now, this is a, a moth that uh, lives in Europe. And prior to the Industrial Revolution, which we have good history for <laughs> and we have good observation, the peppered moth had a very mottled appearance. Uh, it, it, it looked like a white moth with pepper on it. And when the moth like that landed on a tree, it blended in with the bark. And scientists uh, understood that there was a very dark variation of this moth that made up less than 2% of the species. Why? Because when it landed on a tree, it stood out like a sore thumb, and it was easy prey. It was eaten. It didn't get to, to breed nearly as often, um, which is how selection pressures work. The black variation of this gene was not well-suited to the environment. But then you have the Industrial Revolution, and what happens? Factories start releasing smog, and the trees in these forests become covered in soot, so they're black. And what happened? Suddenly, over a relatively short period of time, it was the black moths that were able to breathe, and the mottled ones were not able to breed and pass their genes on. And this species, like you flipped a switch, suddenly was a black moth. And you can imagine, over more periods of time, uh, the, these moths that live in the sooty forests are going to keep breeding, while the peppered moths elsewhere will continue to breed. And before long, each set of genes are going to continue adapting, and they won't be able to breed with each other anymore, and you'll have two new species. That's how natural selection works. So... I think a lot of Christians believe in, there's this whole thing that they delineate microevolution versus macroevolution um, to try to hold on still to some of the, the biblical timescales and stuff. But there's one thing I think a lot of people would say, you know, it's one thing to see a white moth with black specks turn into a black moth and another thing to see a fish turn into a bird. So, like, how how do those little changes, like, how does the first animal with wings, how does the first little change benefit that animal before it can actually use those wings to fly? Oh, yeah, great question. That, that's fantastic. Um, so, it doesn't have to benefit. It just has to not hurt. So, when we talk about survival of the fittest, we're playing a statistics game. A mutation um, will give you a slight boost or slight um, detriment in your ability to survive. So it's not like you'll never get to have offspring if you have this gene. You just have slightly less of a chance than someone that doesn't have it or slightly more. And over time, one gene starts to win out. Um, so you can imagine, we've actually seen this. Um, you know, there, We have transitional fossils in the fossil record. So um, 
you know, you have a, I can't even say it, but Archaeopetrix, um, which is a, a, a lizard-like animal with feathers, right? It couldn't fly, but essentially, thanks to the mutations, it, its scales became feathery. Um, and at first, feathers uh, were advantageous probably um, for warmth and for protection from the sun and not for flight. Um, over time, you can imagine, picture a, a flying squirrel. They don't actually fly, they glide. So we look at the fossil records and we see animals that were probably more glide-like lizards. And just over generations, that gliding got better and better until it could be sustained flight. Uh, and then that eventually uh, is where you know we get birds. Like the, the, the modern tyrannosaur is a chicken. Um, now that's crazy. And that's, that's <laughs> But that's how evolution works. Where do you think life on Earth came from? Um, where do I think life on Earth came from? Love. I love it. Do you believe in evolution? <laughs> I do. Why? Um, I believe that it's necessary. Change is necessary. Where do you think life on Earth came from? Easy answer for me, God. Okay. Do you believe in evolution? Yes, in, in reference to God and the creation, yes. Sure, okay. And I, why do you believe in evolution? Wow. Well, because I think that the term is self-explanatory. I do believe that God created us but in this world and everything, but I also believe that evolution is a part of the ongoing process. There's a lot of people today in our society that don't know precisely what they mean about Scripture or how they can relate to these ancient stories, and yet they're still compelled to be a part of church. And this particular story of this particular man who was God compels them. Um, and, and I certainly know the reason I got involved in the liturgist to begin with was to help create spiritual Christian community for those people who felt like they were forced to choose between science and God, that I think that's a false dichotomy, and that also if we're talking about God being um, infallible and perfect and beyond us, that a lot of the theologies we use to encapsulate God into a particular systematic understanding are in fact ways of constructing our own idols. I'm with you on that. I, that, I, that was my experience as well. I mean, in college, I came up against some of the science, you know, showing the age of the earth, showing um, evolutionary principles. And it really kind of rocked me a little bit because I was a I was an arguer online. <laughs> you know, I was I would get on and debate in the creation chat rooms and the evolution chat rooms. And I would go on and and try to convince people because I was I was raised in Christian school and I I learned in my Christian school textbook, how you know carbon dating was flawed, and the scientists of the world that were more mainstream scientists were all very biased and trying to sway the science towards atheism because they didn't want to believe the Bible, and so they were biased. and And you have to do unbiased science, and the unbiased science always would come up in favor of biblical creationism. Um, 
and I had plenty of arguments under my belt to go into that. And then when I got into college and had to cite my work for my papers, and I was trying to argue that against my professors, I kept seeing that my sources were the biased ones. And uh, in my, you know, that's what it seemed like to me anyway. And that created a lot of tension for me. And that created a lot of, it had this dichotomy of what team am I going to be on? This team that believes the Bible? Or this team that, you know, makes fun of the Bible and, and finds it worthless? And, and you know, that dichotomy created so much tension and pain and doubt and struggle for me. And it took years to kind of come to terms with reading the Bible in a way that didn't have to create those sharp divisions. Michael, do you think it's possible for a, a reasonable person to believe in a literal six-day creation? Sure. There are lots of reasonable people that, that believe in that. And I think, I mean, I think, you know, I, I used to believe in it and I felt like I was being reasonable in believing it. And, you know, I do I feel it's correct? No. Um, do I feel like there's good science for it? No, absolutely not. Um, but I know that there that it's a complicated issue for people because it gets into how we read the Bible and how we treat the Bible. And for a lot of people, they want, they need, you know, to have a cohesive view of Scripture, and to, they don't, they're not willing for good reasons to throw out the whole thing, um, and so we'll go to great lengths to try to uh, figure out creative ways of being reasonable and believing six days, you know, but whatever it would be, believing that God created a mature existence already, you know, 6,000 years ago. Um, the problem with that is it's, you know, you could take that line of thinking and say, God, maybe God created the universe right now. And just with all of the memories in our heads and none of us have lived any time, um, that's theoretically that's possible. You can't talk. just... <laughs> that, is, uh, just that is actually a remarkably... Talk. Um, sophisticated way of thinking in this particular epistemology. This is uh, something that has been coined in uh, specifically Answers in Genesis as observational science versus historical science. The idea that observational science lets us make computers and vaccines and robots on Mars, and it's valid. Uh, but historical science, uh, this idea of looking back in time, is based on flawed methodologies. Um, Obviously, as a science-minded person, I have great trouble with that delineation. It doesn't exist in the sciences other than um, the sort of creation scientists. And that line of thinking would make it impossible to validate the legal v validity of the United States of America. Because in order to verify the Declaration of Independence or our Constitution, what do you have to use? This so-called historical science. So it's kind of a troubling line of reasoning. Now, on the one hand, I appreciate um, the attempt to be rational and to have a, a intellectual rigor about your ideas, to test them and to propose possible solutions. I also really appreciate the way that Answers in Genesis asserts that many things in creation were uh, made old in order to explain what we observe through science. Uh, you know, the, the sort of bubbles and glaciers and tree rings and um, the immense scale of our sky and the ability to kind of look back in time using telescopes. Uh, they've, they've tried to create plausible answers, but to do so, they've needed to fracture science needlessly. And as Michael just alluded to, that process undermines our ability to make any assumptions about physical reality. 
you have to examine historical evidence in order to operate in the world, including trusting the Bible. The Bible is a historical document. And so by their own measure, you would be using historical science to validate and trust the scriptures, which I find deeply troubling. Now, I did want to ask one other question, Michael. Um, Some people online have asserted that to reject the historicity or the the valid of the creation account uh, of Genesis historically is to reject Genesis completely. Um, Do you agree with that? Do you see value in the book of Genesis and the creation myth? I do see value in it. I I think that is another dichotomy that's just completely needless. It's like, to me, that would be like asking if Romeo and Juliet is not historically verifiable and it's not based in history, does that make it lose all value? It's like, that's not even the primary value at all. It's not even the, that's not what it is. Like, to, to make it that is to lose its value, actually. Um, its value is for the genre that it is, for the intention that it is, for, you know, it's it's beautiful. A piece of music, it's, it has nothing to do with the math of the music or the, it's it's not what it is. Like, it's, it's not, aren't you amazed how these numbers added up and balance each other out at the end? That's not what music is. It's an aesthetically driven situation. So to take the poem of Genesis 1, for instance, and to try to make it into a science textbook is to just, is to, kill the thing is to, to remove any beauty that it could possibly have in my in my perspective now um and i say poem because that's actually what it is it's a the way it's lined up and divided in in with repetition and uh the days how they're ordered it is a poem um so i think it absolutely has amazing value and it has for from billions of people for thousands of years. Um, and for thousands of years, or for at least hundreds of years, people have, in Christian history, have been saying things like, hey, uh, you can't try to read the Bible as a science book when science conflicts with the Bible and your reading of the Bible, namely, reread the Bible, like change that, because you're probably the one that's wrong. And if you if you don't do that, you're going to look like an idiot. I mean, that goes all the way through Augustine and all sorts of uh, all sorts of early church fathers. I mean, even even uh, Luther would have said, "Let science speak and and reread the Bible," because because the church made pretty big mistakes in the past, thought, thinking the world was flat and confusing that with a biblical view. And and uh, and there are plenty of scriptures that you could use to support that if you really wanted to try to make. The Psalms, a science book rather than a series of songs um, and poems and whatever, you know, laments and all the different things that they do in the Psalms. Um, well, right, we could, right in Genesis 1, it speaks of a firmament, and a firmament would be a massive globe in the sky. Uh, it's firm, it's, it's a physical material, and the idea of a firmament, as we understand the writings of those days, was that it had holes in it and the light of heaven shone through and that was the stars. And when it rained, uh, water fell from the heavens through those holes and nurtured the earth. Now, obviously, uh, the Voyager spacecraft is very far from the earth indeed, and it has yet to run into the firmament. Uh, And furthermore, um, 
our telescopes and especially our radio telescopes and other probes can look very far into space and there just is no sign whatsoever that stars are small holes in a firmament. Instead, like our sun, they are balls of gas and nuclear fusion. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'm just saying I agree in a very nerdy way. It's a very good nerdy Science, way. Mike. Science, Mike. That's why we call you Science, Mike. <laughs> One other idea, Michael. Um, and this is something I've thought about a lot, but I'd like to hear your take on it. Um, in many discussions with my friends, I actually had a rather lively discussion with some folks from the church I used to attend this morning on Facebook. Don't you just love uh, Facebook discussions of substance? Um, and they repeated a theme I've heard often, that Jesus himself spoke of the writings of Moses as if they were historical fact, and therefore to reject any of Moses' words as allegorical is to reject the divinity of Christ. What would you say to someone who holds that position? I think you're making a lot of assumptions based in a perspective that was handed to you from our culture and that it's the way we think in the modern world is very different than how people thought in the pre-modern world. And to just see a few words that somebody said, that Jesus said about Noah and to assume that you can get into Jesus's mind and know exactly how he thought about the whole situation and how he considered history versus myth versus whatever. How do you know? How do you know? And even if he was wrong, even if he did believe um, that Noah was a historical person or Adam was a historical person and ended up being wrong, I don't understand how that even would deny the divinity of Christ. The whole idea of the divinity of Christ being fully human and fully God, that God lowered himself to become a human being with a human brain in a human culture with human language and human needs and human limitations. Um, well, the scripture seems to indicate, at least in some degree, that uh, Christ is not as, as omniscient as God the Father. Um, because if we, take, if we just take scripture at face value... Uh, it seems to indicate that the only being, if we would even use that word, with knowledge of uh, how and when things will end is God the Father that not even Jesus knows. Good one. And that seems to imply some limitations on the scope of knowledge and insight for Christ incarnate versus the source of all. You know, that, of course, will freak a lot of people out. And I don't think you need to go there necessarily to say that Jesus was wrong <laughs> about it. Um, but it, the point is, it wouldn't freak me out if he was wrong about it in his human human side. Um, but I, you know, I don't, I, I still don't see, yeah, the issue because if Noah and Adam were mythical ideas, the point of what Jesus was saying still applies to me. The point of them still being in the scriptures still applies to me. It has it has very little to do, in my perspective, with Jesus trying to lay out a history of the world for a historical minded people, or uh, or trying to try to explain the science of how things came into being to a pre-modern people. You know, even if Jesus knew that Noah and Adam were mythical, but knew he was talking to people that may have thought they were real, that's another possibility. 
he's just referring to to the story that he's part of. He's just Jewish to these Jewish people that know that story and it speaks of a million things. When they hear about Noah, they have a whole world that's that that has been created around their story and that speaks to a hundred things to them. So for him to use that story, um, of course he would. He's using their language, you know, he's speaking human language and he's speaking within human culture. Um, and I think that's a lot of times what we, in the modern world, we like to try to imagine the Bible uh, at least at least for like modern evangelicals, especially Americans, it seems like we like to imagine it as without context, without culture, but just this sort of objective, pure source of truth that all you have to do is read it and it's clear and you just believe it. And because I think there's so much to why that has happened, but in a nutshell, I believe that the modern... Um, the modern mindset, you know, post-enlightenment thinking, which is which was very reductionist and very, you know, you can know things to be true if you break them apart, put them under a microscope and uh, dissect them and, you know, come up with propositions that are true, verifiably. Um, that sort of thinking, by the way, is very effective in a lot of ways. And we can see what it's done in the world. It's given us modern science and it's given us medicine and it's given it's sent people to the moon and it's made it's made life a lot better for so many people so that kind of thinking is extremely valuable um but when you try to apply that sort of thinking to god and to faith uh it can get dangerous because you can really reduce infinity to something manageable and i think that's why if you ask a lot of uh, these people that would argue that dichotomy what is the center of faith they would probably say the bible where if you ask somebody pre-enlightenment, uh, what is the center of the Christian faith? Everybody's going to say Jesus Christ. Um, and, and we would have to acknowledge that there was a time in history where there was a Christian faith but was not a Bible. Yeah. In fact, one of the most interesting discussions I've ever been a part of online was during the period of time in my life where I was an atheist and didn't believe in God at all. And... Uh, there was a, a conversation on an internet forum between evangelical Christians and atheists about the validity of Scripture. And a, a secular historian weighed in with great frustration uh, that both the conservative Christians and the atheists were examining a historical document with an incorrect lens, that they were, as Michael said, looking at it through modern eyes. And that was a very poor way to read that document, um, that in those days to separate the, the story of the people and their uh, cultural context and the uh, social identity they had was impossible to, to extract that from the text and that no civilization at that time in history made any attempt to have a dry recollection of history. History was always viewed through the lens of the identity and culture and history of that group. It was obviously and even intentionally biased. Um, and I, I thought that was quite remarkable because I was an atheist and I felt rebuked because I was doing a poor job in evaluating the Bible academically. Uh, and that, that was one of the things that started me to, to reconsider what belief really meant and what these stories really mean.
All right, Lisa, I think we're we're uh, getting close to needing to get into our art phase, but we don't have a jingle for art right now. I think you should probably create one for us. Art, 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 art. If you didn't hear that, that was the really artsy way of saying art. <laughs> or very creative. I don't know how much evolution has to say about art. Um... I mean, there are maybe some interesting theoretical discussions to have about memes and the evolution of human society and how art has reflected that. But uh, as an answer that I just edited out, pointed out, it's not very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) But I just know, even the reason that I was excited about doing evolution as a second podcast... um, it's a little obscure and I, I'm even trying to understand why myself, because as an artist, yeah, why does natural selection matter to me outside of that? Somehow it does. Um, it just does. And some of that's my, my makeup, I'm sure as kind of the person that wants to, wants to know, um, it's just kind of my personality. I just I want to keep digging and get to the bottom of it. Um, but it's also, for some reason, gives me, just as a human being, a certain humility to think of the universe in this way, rather than the very human-centric and very small and very young universe that I grew up with. The older and the bigger and the um, more out of my control that the universe has become as I've learned more about it and is more inspiring to me. It's like I am now this... I'm part of this glorious, beautiful thing that's unfolding and something that's so crazy um, of just this, these just millions of species over billions of years. And I'm this like little, like little punctuation mark at the end of this novel like of history that happens to have eyes to see and, and, a brain that lets me wonder and feel transcendence and and it's just like to see all to see truth i think how can the artist not want to see truth because isn't our art like playing with reality it's it's forming reality and forming truth into new beautiful ideas and to see what happens in the universe around us as species evolve and as life broadens and as the universe continues to just move away from us at unfathomable speeds and like all of that it's just to me super inspiring to as a human being how do we not respond with art to this and um and how is god not so much more magnificent and i guess that's what evolution does for me as an artist is it uh it's like if God is the creator and you get you get a chance to check out his paintbrush, why wouldn't you just like look at it as hard as you can and get everything from it that you can? Um, so, Liz, does it not does it not matter? You said it doesn't matter to you. What evolution? Does it still not matter to you? <laughs> I mean, do I have my mind set on what I think? is true yes would it matter if i met god tomorrow 
And he was like, you know what? I created the universe and Adam full grown and everything else too. I would be like, cool. That's cool. You wouldn't be like, why did you trick us? I don't feel tricked. I feel like we have we can make guesses and like try to get to like what we know and what we're given. This is the best answer that we can come up with. But that doesn't mean that I'm all knowing. I'm again, we weren't there. I'm not all knowing. I don't I'm doing the best I can for what I'm given. And this is the best answer that I can come up with. And if someone comes up with something better, then at that point, we'll, like, I'll take that into consideration. But is my world going to shatter if God looks at me and is like, Liz, Genesis was like, that's exactly how it happened. Like, I'm going to be like, wow, cool. I guess I was wrong. (laughs) It's not going to be like, I'm not going to be in any less wonder of him either way well apparently we should have just had you do the whole episode because that was better than anything we've said the entire time but i i want to i want to add one aside right there if i could because this is this cuts to the heart of something for me what's important about our faith what really matters what is vital because one thing that grieves me and concerns me is the constant back and forth and bickering between what we would call evangelical Christians or fundamentalist Christians or progressive Christians or mainline Christians um, or even Protestant Christians and Catholic Christians, we have these tendencies to take our ideas about God and elevate them above the idea uh, that we've all chosen, for whatever reason, to follow a particular historical figure who is Jesus, and that we've all decided that that decision is going to be a decision of incredible importance in our lives. And we take issues like how to best approach Genesis, and we turn them into ways to divide ourselves apart. Let me be very clear. I absolutely support discussion and debate and dialogue about how to approach Genesis. That's healthy. What's not healthy is our tendency to demonize each other. If you're a person who believes the earth was created in six literal days, I have no qualm with you. I would be happy to attend a church function with you. I would be happy to go to a homeless shelter with you to serve food to people in need. I would love to pray with you. I would love to study the Bible with you. But I just wish that we as a people, we uh, who, who is part of our understanding of Christ, believe that humility is very important, could all take a step back and understand that all of our ideas about God are simply that. They're ideas. I obviously think my ideas about God are best. That's why I've chosen them. But I'm always open to listening to someone else's perspective, and I always admit that anything I say or know could be wrong. Now, there are those people that say that that's theologically dangerous, but I think that's the only way to be intellectually honest. If we believe that our read of Scripture or our interpretation of God is perfect 
are the best, or dare I say infallible, I think we are in real danger of elevating ourselves to intellectual gods, that in fact, questioning ourselves, questioning even the scripture, is not an act of elevating ourselves, but instead a way of humbling ourselves. Amen and amen. I, I think that if not only Jesus and the early apostles and early fathers, but that most Christians, if they, you know, pre-1500, if they saw what a lot of us have made Christianity into, it would just break their hearts into these splintering, a million sects of different people that have made faith about these different propositions and ideas that they disagree on and you find your own little camp that only you agree about and that's what we all do and it just i think it would break their hearts it was uh you know they used to talk about words like the the cloud of unknowing i just saw this prayer this morning this old saint and uh this great cloud of unknowing and the whole idea of belief um to a pre-modern person it was not this uh you know, certitude about how the universe works, the certitude about the past and the history of the fossil record. There wasn't, there wasn't a certitude about what exactly the Trinitarian doctrine of this. I mean, they took four to six hundred years to to come up with the language for the Trinity, um, and to even like think of those implications and what would that mean. They, they were, it was all about, it was about mystery and it was about trust and faith and hope and love. And this great cloud of unknowing that we come into something greater than ourselves when we come to our faith and we come to God. And um, I feel I fear that in the modern world we, we just tend to reduce it so so unfortunately to to little ideas and little propositions that we allow ourselves to just divide over. Um, and I would imagine that it would break the heart of the one who prayed in the garden that we would be one as him and his father were one. I don't think uh, I don't think we could end any better than that. <laughs> so everybody, I want to thank you for uh, listening to this episode and for being a part. Um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts and reactions on Twitter or uh, in the discussion comments below on our website at theliturgist.com slash podcast. This is Science Mike. I'm Michael Gunger. And I'm Lisa Pena. Thanks for joining us.